This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in your podcast app. I'm going to start tonight with um, a first to say that I have uh, no relevant uh, financial relationships with anything I'm going to be discussing tonight. I want to start with uh, two slides that I showed the first week when we talked about high blood pressure. Uh, since the treatment of high blood pressure and the treatment of high blood cholesterol are very much uh, a pair uh, of, uh, of tasks that we do in order to prevent uh, heart disease and stroke. And as I mentioned that first week, uh, we've, uh, in the United States, we've been doing quite a good job. Things have changed just in the last year or so because of the COVID pandemic. Uh, but overall, pre uh, uh, unrelated to covid uh, the heart, uh, the death rate from uh, cardiovascular disease, and when I say cardiovascular disease, I refer to both heart disease uh, and stroke, um, has gone down dramatically, uh, first from uh, 1980 to 2000, and then again from 2000 to 2020. The death rate has gone down uh, quite substantially uh, through each of those uh, decades. Uh, and when we analyze why, uh, what we find out uh, is that about half comes from what happens in, in the hospital. Um, and, might, and one might say also uh, in the uh, EMT uh, process, um, in the community, in the emergency department, uh, and in the, uh, uh, in the hospital and the intensive care units, the CCUs, and now we have neurointensive care units. And, and those uh, innovations and interventions over the last uh, uh, 20 to 40 years have really totally changed the way we manage uh, both uh, acute heart disease and acute stroke, and they've been very, very effective. Uh, and so when you hear that uh, uh, some of the risk factors for having an acute uh, heart problem or an acute uh, stroke problem, uh, that's why that we teach about that to make sure that you call 911 uh, and get care for that immediately. More in the outpatient side, more in the primary care uh, environment, what we do is we primarily uh, treat risk factors. And we do that um, with uh, uh, lifestyle and with medications. And when we analyze what's had the most impact, uh, what we see is that it's come uh, from a combination of uh, treatment of blood pressure, uh, treatment of high blood cholesterol, uh, and smoking cessation. And today, I'm going to talk about high blood cholesterol. I also showed this slide, uh, which really uh, is a focus, a lot of our thinking uh, when we talk to a patient uh, and when we think ourselves about clinical decisions. And this is true for any decision in medicine. Uh, that is to understand that there's benefit and there's harm. Uh, and often in clinical medicine, we hear more about the potential benefits of an intervention, whether a new drug or a surgery. Um, and often we uh, don't hear as much about the potential harms. Uh, and it's really up to all of us, uh, if we're really on our game, uh, to spend uh, equal amounts of time on both the benefits and the harms. Uh, and of course, um, when we think about modern day medicine, uh, we also think about costs and what we call value. Uh, are we getting our money's worth uh, for the intervention uh, that we're proposing? Is it worth it? We also, in the context of risk reduction, often you will hear um, about an intervention and it'll say something like, this 
this new uh, medication uh, lowers the risk of, of something by 50%. And that's really important. That's how studies uh, uh, get done. That's how medications get approved by the FDA. But when you as a patient want to decide whether you should take the medication, what you also have to ask is a second question, which is 50% of what? That is to say, if your risk of something happening is really, really, really low, and you lower it by a half, you haven't done much good. On the other hand, if your risk of something uh, is high and uh, almost the risk of almost everything increases as you age, um, and certainly risk factors are uh, additive or in many cases multiplicative, that is they uh, increase uh, together uh, your risk. And I'll show some examples of that uh, as we go through this. But if your risk is higher, then if we can lower it by half, that's really important. And so that kind of understanding of how effective is the intervention in terms of the relative risk reduction, and that's what always makes the headlines, new drug reduces something by 15%, 75%, but then you have to ask, am I really at risk for that? And does it matter? Um, and what's my native risk? What's my personal risk uh, of getting uh, that illness? Because if I'm reducing a very low risk, it doesn't matter. My risk is still very low. And I'll show some examples of that throughout the night. Okay, tonight we're going to talk about cholesterol. Um, and just I want to start with some definitions. Um, and uh, just so very simple uh, definitions um, and, uh, and one uh, arithmetic equation. And we talk about uh, cholesterol and mostly we talk about the total cholesterol. Uh, this is measured in the blood uh, in a laboratory. These days, it can be done either fasting or non-fasting. Uh, we used to think it had to be done uh, fasting, but for most people, it can be done non-fasting as well. And most laboratories now uh, accept a non-fasting specimen. I'll explain why uh, in just a moment. So the total cholesterol, as you'll see at the bottom of the slide, is really just the arithmetic sum of the three other uh, factors, the uh, LDL cholesterol, the HDL cholesterol, and the triglycerides. Now, low-density lipoprotein is the LDL, um, and that's the low-density, this should be LDL here, uh, low-density cholesterol, a low-density lipoprotein. And I like to say to patients, L stands for lousy. That's not really what it stands for. It stands for low. But the way you remember this, uh, which is the bad one, it's the LDL is the bad one, L for lousy. The high-density lipoprotein is a smaller particle, uh, and it uh, confers protection. And so uh, individuals uh, who uh, have a very high uh, LDL but also have a very high HDL have lower risk than if the LDL is very high and the HDL is normal or low. So if you have a very low HDL, that confers additional risk of having heart attack or stroke. The challenge with HDL is that we don't have that many medications that increase the HDL, uh, and I'll come back to that. And so we focus a lot of our clinical work on the LDL, the bad cholesterol. The fourth part of the equation are the blood triglycerides. These can be also measured uh, in the blood. The proteins that carry triglycerides are only 20% uh, cholesterol. 
And so when we do our arithmetic, we divide the blood cholesterol by five. Now, you don't have to remember this equation because uh, your laboratory results will give you all of these factors, uh, and it's uh, quite straightforward. Uh, but it's important to know their relationship. Uh, and sometimes uh, people get confused because the total cholesterol might be high. Uh, and that can be a little misleading because you can have a high total cholesterol, right, for any one of three reasons and many combinations beyond those three reasons. That is to say, the total cholesterol could be high because your LDL cholesterol is high, and that would be bad. In that case, the total cholesterol would reflect a high LDL, and that would increase your risk uh, of coronary heart, heart disease and stroke. On the other hand, if your HDL is very high, same equation, that will make your total cholesterol high also. And so the total cholesterol may be quite misleading. The high HDL, uh, sometimes you'll see that in individuals uh, where the HDL is very high uh, and the total cholesterol is high and people get worried, but in fact, they're uh, maybe quite protective. And finally, the triglycerides are a little bit more complicated. Um, when they're very, very high, people are at risk of other illnesses, uh, particularly pancreatic illnesses. Pancreatitis is the most common one. Um, and there are several genetic disorders which cause high blood triglycerides. Uh, and those are um, a different thing. But it's worth noting that people with very high uh, triglycerides from the genetic disorders uh, don't die prematurely of heart disease or stroke. So in general, we don't think of triglyceride as a really big risk factor for heart disease. It does contribute a little bit uh, beyond the uh, uh, impact of the LDL and the HDL, but it's muted compared to the other two. And for the most part, we don't treat a high uh, triglyceride uh, uh, in and of itself to prevent heart disease or stroke. Again, if your triglycerides are very high, typically over 500 or 1,000, then we do treat it to prevent pancreatitis. Uh, but it doesn't add much benefit to the treatment, uh, to, uh, to the prevention of heart attacks and strokes. So in summary, uh, we have several factors. The laboratory will present you with all of those. Uh, the one that we care most about is the LDL cholesterol. Now, it was popular uh, several years ago uh, to create ratios. Obviously, you can divide any two of these numbers into each other. Uh, so the total cholesterol divided by the HDL or the LDL and HDL can all be made into ratios. But it's turned out those aren't all that uh, important. They don't add very much additional information over and above uh, the individual LDL and HDL themselves. As I mentioned, the, uh, the total, cholesterol, total cholesterol means different things. Uh, and if you have a, va a little variation in the measurement of any of these, the ratio will multiply that error uh, and just give you false information. So we pretty much uh, don't worry too much about the total, uh, knowing, understanding this relationship. Uh, the triglyceride we do look at, but in a different context. And we spend most of our time thinking about the LDL cholesterol and the HDL cholesterol. And I'll show you how we do that in clinical practice in a minute. I did mention you can do your uh, measurements now non-fasting. That is not fasting. We used to think you had to do them fasting because the triglyceride, uh, especially in some people, can be uh, elevated after a meal. 
Um, it turns out that that although that's true in some occasional individuals, it mostly isn't true. And since we're dividing the triglycerides by five, it doesn't have very much impact on the other fraction. So uh, these days we measure the, if it's more convenient, if your appointment's in the afternoon and it's more convenient to get the blood test then, that's fine. Uh, if you wanna come back on an empty stomach um, next week um, and do it uh, on a, in the best uh, ideal circumstance, uh, then fasting is also fine. All right, let's uh, just think of a, um, uh, a situation. So this is a 60 year old person. Um, the LDL uh, measured was 140. And again, this is how we often talk about these cases. We don't mention the other fractions because for all the reasons I just uh, uh, mentioned, mostly we focus on the LDL cholesterol as our treatment goal. So just like with blood pressure, where we focus mostly on the upper number, the systolic blood pressure, pay attention to the lower number because uh, sometimes that can be important too, but systolic most important. Here too, the, all the numbers have some value, but the LDL is really where the action is. Now, this uh, person um, um, who uh, we're thinking about doesn't have high blood pressure nor diabetes uh, and has never had any evidence of heart disease or stroke. Uh, they follow uh, a diet and exercise to lower their cholesterol as best they can. I will talk more about that in a minute. And the question uh, in the office, and again, this is something we want you to participate in as a patient, uh, is what is our next best step? And uh, some of the choices here are to, uh, to think more about the benefit and risk um, uh, and uh, before we make any decisions. Secondly, um, to realize that we have enough information so we, we can begin uh, uh, a statin, in this case, a torvastatin at a lowest dose. Uh, or maybe we should begin a torvastatin at a higher dose. We can begin aspirin at 81 milligrams. Uh, that's a baby aspirin. Or we can begin fish oil tablets. And I'll show you the uh, correct answer uh, as we go through the talk. But these are the kind of things that uh, we would be thinking about uh, in the office. And think about uh, what, um, what you would like to happen uh, if you were the patient. Now, what's um, amazing about the prevention of heart disease with medications is that when the uh, statin drugs came out, we had had uh, in the decades before that uh, approximately 20 years of medications that were very ineffective. Uh, they barely lowered the uh, blood cholesterol. They had a lot of side effects. And there was very little evidence that they prevented heart attacks or strokes. Uh, and if they did, it was by a little amount, and it didn't lead to a benefit on uh, life expectancy or uh, what we call mortality. But then the statins came out, and these are some of the early statin trials. Uh, there are now about uh, uh, two dozen or more of these. And the design uh, of all of them was the same. It was uh, uh, one of the statins compared to a placebo. Uh, in a, usually a large group of patients, I'll give you more detail on one of the examples in a minute, uh, a large group of patients followed for five years, looking at how many of the patients in both groups developed a heart attack uh, that was not the cause of their death, a stroke that was not the cause of their death, a heart attack that was the cause of their death, and a stroke that was the cause of their death. Um, and that way you can look at what we call uh, events, 
uh, or you can look at mortality. Uh, and this is an example. These early studies uh, just uh, um, looked at events, and this is heart disease, but the data for strokes are very, very similar. And I think you can see across these studies, these initial studies that really changed the way we think about this, as well as the many, uh, uh, the two dozen uh, studies that followed, is that when a patient, a group of patients take, uh, or an individual patient takes a statin uh, compared to a placebo, uh, that the risk of developing a heart attack during the, in the next five years is reduced by a quarter or a third. So that's the lingo we use a lot, that uh, if you take a statin, uh, you can lower the risk of a heart attack by a quarter or a third. Now, this is where that original seesaw slide comes into, into play. And so just to reiterate, reiterate that, if I tell you that this medicine lowers your risk of a heart attack or a stroke by a quarter of a third, that's correct. And we have a lot of evidence to support that. But then you should be then asking, what's my risk? A quarter of a third of what? Because if I'm a 30-year-old person and, uh, or a 40-year-old person and my risk is quite low because young people don't get heart attacks and strokes very often, then if I lower that by a quarter of a third, I haven't done very much. However, if you're older, like our patient in the case, 68 years old, um, and um, then your risk, because it's age-dependent, it goes up much more, lowering that by a quarter and a third uh, uh, becomes much more important. And you can see these initial studies uh, were done with some of the older statins, uh, but the newer statins... Um, have a similar uh, uh, impact, and in many cases, even better impact. Now, this is one of those older studies, uh, but it, um, it makes a very interesting uh, additional point. This study had 20,000 patients in it, uh, 10,000 in uh, both the experimental arm with the statin and an equal number in the placebo. And overall, uh, if you just looked at the whole study, just statin versus placebo, uh, the net result is shown here with the green diamond, um, which shows, uh, so this is, uh, if there was no difference, it would be on the solid line. Uh, rather, now the uh, it's moved over uh, to the left, and that shows that statins were better uh, than placebo. And this was a 24% reduction, similar to what the other studies had shown. And so this was really uh, reinforcing. It wasn't uh, brand new information at the time, uh, but it was consistent with the uh, other studies. But this was one of the bigger, uh, first really big studies, 20,000 people, 20,000 uh, 20, subjects. And so it allowed us to uh, uh, look at the patients based upon what their starting LDL cholesterol was. Uh, that is to say, in patients whose LDL was over 130, uh, the intervention worked. And so you see the square lines up with the triangle, and it's exactly the same. There was, again, about a 25% reduction um, if your LDL cholesterol was over 130. If your LDL was between 100 and 130, the intervention also worked. So you see it's all about the same. The thing that was most interesting about this study, and it's been shown in the study since, is that if your LDL was, quote, normal, what we considered normal at that time, which was under 100, the medication still worked. So that is to say, we think 
for the most part, and most of the studies still suggest that that the cholesterol-lowering medications work by lowering the LDL cholesterol. But here, something else is happening also, because although we're lowering the LDL cholesterol, we're lowering it in people whose LDL at the beginning wasn't that high. In fact, was what we at the time considered normal. Uh, But it still worked. Uh, The dot is still on the line with all the others. So this got us thinking, well, maybe we shouldn't worry so much about the LDL is at the beginning, and let's just treat uh, anyone based upon what their risk. Again, if their risk is high, we can lower it by a quarter of a third. That has value. Let's do it. Uh, and again, if they're, lo- if they're young and their risk is low, uh, it doesn't matter so much because we're making a small number smaller. Right now in our practice, we do both of those things. Uh, we do look at overall risk, uh, but we're also, we still look at the LDL because uh, the higher it is, uh, the more we want to lower it. But we keep in mind the fact that even if your LDL is relatively low, lowering it further may have benefit. Now, I'm going to start by showing the guidelines from the American College of Cardiology and the American Heart Association. And I'm going to call these the cardiology guidelines. Uh, I'll show you some other guidelines uh, as we go through this. But these guidelines pretty much um, dominate clinical practice. Uh, And rather than showing so much competing guidelines, what I'm going to do is show you the strengths and weaknesses of these guidelines. But for the most part, these guidelines drive most of our clinical practice. However, I think you'll see as we go through this that there's a lot of nuance. And that is to say there's a lot of room for shared decision-making or uh, putting it another way for your personal uh, values Uh, and desires uh, to become part of the conversation. So these guidelines are well done. They're based on um, uh, clinical trials. Uh, They also look at some other lines of evidence, but mostly the big uh, clinical trials like the ones I just showed you. They recommend a healthy lifestyle for everyone, no matter what your cholesterol is. And I'll define that in a minute. They talk about uh, four groups of patients who benefit from statins, and I'll define those uh, also in a minute. They uh, uh, describe different types of statins, uh, what we call high-intensity statins, moderate-intensity statins, and lower-intensity statins. They focus on the LDL as the treatment target, uh, but again, they also uh, focus on uh, your risk uh, by using an equation that calculates your 10-year risk of atherosclerotic car, uh, cardiovascular disease. Uh, that's, what you'll, uh, that's what the ASCVD means. It means a combination of heart, heart disease and stroke. And then they define non-statin therapies for some patients. And we'll review at the end um, what, uh, what those are, uh, what options uh, those are. But mostly what we're talking about here in these guidelines is the use of statins uh, primarily because uh, they've been around for a while, uh, and they're uh, well-priced, um, they lower uh, cholesterol a lot, up by the 30 to 50%, and they lower your risk of a heart attack or stroke by a quarter or a third. And so the statins are the mainstay, um, despite what you'll hear on the, might read on the internet, uh, the statins are the mainstay of high blood cholesterol treatment. And it's why we have lowered that risk of coronary artery disease and stroke so effectively over the last 40 years. 
Now, here are the four groups of patients. Um, some of these are not controversial, and some of them are, uh, have more nuance. The first three are relatively non-controversial. Now, <clears throat> number one is the top one. And a patient uh, who has already had an event or some evidence of heart disease or stroke, whether that's exertional, exertional chest pain that we call angina, uh, a prior heart attack, whether it was a serious one or a minor one, a transient ischemic attack, or some people call a pre-stroke or a minor stroke or a bigger stroke. All of these people already have the clinical disease that we're trying to prevent. And we put them in a different category, what we call secondary prevention. So if you've had, if you've had the disease, either heart attack or stroke uh, or any of the preconditions, then we recommend that we lower your blood cholesterol aggressively uh, for most of the rest of your life until really the very end of life when you're um, uh, beginning to terminate uh, other interventions. So patients who have had a stroke or a heart attack stay on uh, statins uh, for the rest of their lives. When you go into the hospital, the neurologist or the cardiologist will start you on a very high dose of statins the minute you come in, and you'll be on the highest dose of a high-intensity statin, and I'll, I'll define that for you in just a moment. But there, in this context, there's no controversy. Treating with the statins helps in the hospital, and it also helps prevent recurrent events after the hospital. The second button, excuse me, is less common and less and also uh, less controversial. These are people with primarily genetic disorders, and so these are people uh, whose LDL cholesterol is very, very high. Remember, in the earlier slides. We were talking about 130, being over 130, being over 100, being under 100. Here, these are people whose LDL cholesterol is over 190. These are almost always genetic disorders. Um, and this can be uh, sorted out mostly by family history. So many of you may remember when the statins first came out, uh, there were uh, some of the commercials that were very effective, talked about uh, is your high, high cholesterol from your grandmother uh, or your diet? Um, and it turns out it's mostly from your grandmother. Uh, that is to say, uh, genetic factors uh, are the primary drivers of your own blood cholesterol. And so if your uh, first degree relatives, that is your parents uh, or your siblings uh, or your children, uh, have very high uh, LDL cholesterol, uh, you may well as well. Your risk of it is much higher. Uh, and that's primarily genetic. And those individuals, uh, typically, uh, if you don't even know the cholesterol, uh, depending on what era uh, the, your parents are from, uh, you may know that they died uh, prematurely of uh, heart disease or stroke. And uh, so the risk factor that we think about clinically is premature heart disease or stroke, uh, less than age um, 55 in a man or 65 in a woman. Uh, and we call that premature disease, but it's first-degree relatives. If your Uncle Joey had a heart attack um, at uh, 72, that doesn't confer any extra risk to you. What we're looking for is premature, uh, that is young age, a uh, heart disease or stroke. And when we evaluate those patients, those are the ones who typically have LDLs that are uh, over 190. These days, the third bullet 
uh, are patients with diabetes. Uh, and we pretty much treat the patients with diabetes similar to the way uh, we treat the patients who have already had uh, a heart attack or stroke. That is to say, we treat them. Uh, there's a little bit of nuance here. Uh, we say 40 to 75 only because that's when the studies were done. Uh, we don't believe in treating uh, uh, children with diabetes with a statin, uh, but adults uh, with uh, diabetes, most of which are type 2 diabetes, who do have premature heart disease and strokes, uh, treating them with a statin is part of their standard of care. Uh, again, um, you can extend this past age 75, just like up here, there's no age limit because we uh, consider patients uh, well into their 80s and 90s uh, if they've had the disease. Uh, here, we, it just says 75 because the studies uh, didn't go after 75, but most clinicians would continue to treat a patient with diabetes, uh, uh, again, well into towards the end of their life uh, with a statin, uh, as well as their diabetes medications. Now, the fourth bullet is where we have most of our conversation, where most of the nuances. And these are individuals who do not have uh, heart disease or stroke, do not have atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. They do not have diabetes. They're middle-aged. Uh, and again, sim simply because that's where the studies were done, uh, doesn't mean you can't continue, <clears throat> continue after age 75, but we do so with less evidence. They have an LDL that's not uh, perfect. Uh, that is over 70. Uh, uh, and again, we, uh, we use an equation and estimate their 10-year risk. Now, this number 7.5% is where there's a lot of controversy, and I'll come back to that. Uh, but this is what the cardiology guidelines recommend. Uh, that, and this is linear. So if your 10-year risk is 7.5%, it means your one-year risk is 0.75%. So one-tenth of that. But to, uh, to think in terms of 10 years uh, rounds up the numbers. Uh, and this number, 7.5, is something we'll come back to because that's where the controversy uh, is. So in summary, there are four groups of patients who benefit from statins. Uh, most of them are straightforward. If you've had the disease in any format, we treat. If you have a genetic disorder with a family history of premature heart disease or stroke, we treat. If you have clinical diabetes, uh, we treat. Uh, and then in this fourth group, if you have risk of having a, a heart disease or stroke based upon other factors, uh, whether that be your age, uh, your uh, <clears throat> sex at birth, uh, your uh, body mass index or weight, uh, your exercise level, uh, your smoking history, and so on, uh, those things all go into our equations. And if the risk uh, turns out to be above a certain number, uh, then we would recommend treating you as well. And this last bullet we'll spend some time on. So we're gonna uh, focus uh, most of the time uh, tonight on the medications, uh, statins and others. Uh, but uh, it's, it's worth keeping in mind that the lifestyle recommendations uh, remain secure and should be part of every conversation uh, related to preventing heart disease and stroke. Um, and that's true whether your cholesterol is normal or not, because there's benefit from these lifestyle recommendations independent of your uh, cholesterol. Uh, and that is a heart-healthy diet, which I'll define in the next slide, uh, regular aerobic exercise, which I'll also uh, define more in the next slide, 
maintaining a desirable body weight, uh, which we'll talk about next week, uh, and not smoking. And so these are the four uh, pillars, if you will, of lifestyle recommendations uh, to prevent heart disease and stroke. Now, the heart-healthy diet, um, there's not too much new here. Um, you've uh, learned these principles for uh, several decades now. And it's interesting when you read the nutrition literature and hear about a new diet uh, on, that um, it goes to one extreme or another, almost all the diets have these things in common. That is, to, it should include lots of fresh fruits and vegetables, nuts and whole grains, uh, lean vegetable and animal protein, and fish. Now, you can do this without the uh, animal protein and fish. That is to say, vegan diets and vegetarian diets are perfectly healthy in this context. You can do it without as much grains if you're on a lower carbohydrate diet. But the most important thing is to eliminate uh, the things that we want to avoid in our diet. Trans fats are pretty much out of the U.S. food supply. Um, it's taken a while, but they're mostly gone. And we're mostly in uh, process, highly processed foods and fast foods, but they've been mostly eliminated. Uh, but the two things that raise your blood cholesterol, your LDL cholesterol in the diet are primarily saturated fat and total calories. Um, and so red meat has more saturated fat in it than uh, chicken or fish or vegetarian uh, uh, proteins. Uh, processed red meats um, like uh, coal cuts and so on uh, fall into the same category. Uh, and then, of course, in any uh, good dietary advice these days, we want to avoid refined carbohydrates. Uh, that is uh, uh, white breads and uh, uh, white pastas, pizza, and so on. Uh, some of the foods I showed when we talked about salt in the diet, same foods. Uh, and, uh, and of course, to avoid anything with added sugar. So sweetened beverage are first on the list, but there are many, many, many other things that have uh, added sugar. And so that becomes uh, the highlight. So if you're uh, focusing on things to avoid, you focus on avoiding uh, added sugar, avoiding refined carbohydrates, or being uh, eating them modestly, uh, and avoiding lots and lots of saturated fat, uh, which comes mostly from red meat uh, and whole uh, dairy products. Conversely, if you want to focus on uh, what you should eat, uh, it's mostly uh, plants, uh, so fruits and vegetables, nuts, whole grains, uh, and then either vegetarian or uh, non-vegetarian uh, with an adequate protein from uh, either vegetables uh, or chicken and fish. And again, uh, we recommend uh, maintaining a, a good body weight. Uh, and uh, we'll, again, we'll focus on that uh, next week. Now, regular aerobic exercise uh, has been a recommendation that's uh, been resilient. Uh, that is to say, it was made uh, decades ago, and the studies uh, continue to reinforce the uh, single the importance of this. Uh, and there's a lot of evidence, and we'll talk about this again in the context of weight. But no matter what your body weight is, even if you're in, if it's normal weight, or if it's uh, in the overweight category, uh, or in the more severely elevated category that we call obesity, um, if you are fit which means if you exercise per these recommendations, you uh, obtain benefit uh, on uh, cardiovascular events uh, and diabetes and life expectancy independent of your body weight 
if you are able to achieve fitness. And what I mean by fitness, uh, there are many ways to define it, but this is one way to define it, um, which is 150 minutes per week of moderate intensity physical activity. So that means uh, going for a walk most days, uh, typically about 30 minutes or so, uh, five or six days a week. I like to joke and say that exercise is biblical, six days, six days of exercise and one day of rest. And you don't want to do it 150 minutes all at once. You want to spread this out through the, uh, through the week. So I recommend uh, six days a week of uh, uh, moderate intensity uh, cardiovascular aerobic exercise. Now, if you uh, are a jogger uh, or other sports with more vigorous exercise, uh, you can uh, do, achieve the same goals with less. Um, but as patients uh, get older, we mostly focus on uh, moderate intensity uh, exercise. Now, there were some uh, interesting studies just this month um, <clears throat> that not only reinforced this, uh, but also began to suggest that maybe more than 150 is the magic number. So getting up closer to uh, 200 or even 300 minutes uh, per week uh, gets uh, 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 into the highest amount of prevention from uh, aerobic exercise. Uh, and so that in many of the studies, it's up to an hour a day, uh, six days a week. Uh, and um, that's where you get up into 300 uh, or more minutes uh, per week. So that's a lot. And we don't recommend that anyone start that immediately. Uh, we don't want people to do it intensively. We want you to do whatever you normally do. Just do more of it. I care more about frequency and duration than I do about intensity uh, for most patients. Uh, but this is the single most important thing you can do for your overall cardiovascular health, independent of your body weight and independent of your uh, blood cholesterol. Now, it's worth noting that when we talk about exercise, and this is not a talk just on exercise, but when we talk about exercise, so far I've talked mostly about cardiovascular exercise uh, or aerobic exercise that gets your heart rate going up and sweating a bit. Um, an activity at which you can talk, uh, but not sing is another phrase that people use to describe this. But remember that uh, fitness also includes strength, flexibility, and balance. And especially as you get older, those three other factors become extremely important as well. All right. So we've talked about four groups who have uh, a heart disease, uh, who have indications for statins. Uh, and uh, let's think now about uh, what we specifically uh, recommend as treatment for each of these groups. So if you have the disease, so you already have clinical atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, uh, you already got a high-intensity statin when your event happened in the CCU or the neurointensive care unit, uh, and you're discharged home on the high-intensity statin, you should stay on it. And so the goal, if you have the disease, is to take as a high dose of statin as you can, and I'll define what those are in just a moment. The high-intensity statins lower your LDL cholesterol by 50%, so it's really quite dramatic. So if your LDL was 160 uh, uh, when you had the, uh, your um, uh, stroke or heart attack, uh, the cholesterol, uh, the medication can lower it to 80, uh, so it's really quite uh, remarkable. In some patients uh, who are at very high risk, the guidelines talk about adding other medicines uh, if the LDL does not uh, go drop below 70. That's a little controversial. That's more of the nuance, and I'll, I'll come back to that uh, in a moment. But the most important thing to do is make sure you're taking the highest dose of statins that you can tolerate 
uh, within the limits for each medication, uh, uh, following that it lowered your LDL by about 50%, and that's giving you the maximum benefit. For the genetic disorders, we do the same thing. We treat with a high-intensity statin. Uh, and again, we can use other, some other of the newer drugs if we need to, uh, but often the, because the uh, statins are so potent uh, that even if you start with an LDL of 190, uh, we can often get it down to under 100 uh, with just a single medication. But certainly some patients with ge bad genetic disorders and very striking family histories uh, <clears throat> may consider other medications, but they're not as effective as I'll show you in a minute. Patients with diabetes, it's similar. Uh, we uh, either use what we call a moderate-intensity statin or a high-intensity statin. Most patients, we just uh, we try to get up to a high-intensity statin if we can. Um, and so, so far, it's pretty simple. Uh, <clears throat> the, for the top three groups, whether you have the disease, or whether you have diabetes, or whether you have a genetic disorder, we try to get you on the highest dose of the statin that we can. And the, the tricky group are the patients, what we call primary prevention, uh, that is patients who don't have atherosclerotic disease yet uh, and hopefully don't want to get it, don't have diabetes. Again, the age is a little arbitrary because that's being scientific. That's a, a, the age at which the studies were done, but we can stretch those ages if we need to. If the LDL is above our goal, and you have a, a risk that we can define in 10 years that's over some number, uh, at least 7.5%, um, then what we recommend is beginning to begin that process of what we call shared decision-making, where you and your clinician uh, discuss whether you should start a statin as primary prevention. And this is similar to the kind of conversation you would have uh, for treatment of high blood pressure. Now, there are various ways to have this discussion that we call shared decision-making, and I'll illustrate this in a number of different ways. Um, and a lot of it has to do with what your own values are and what your own risk is and how risk-averse you are. Um, but there may be other factors that uh, are important to you uh, that we call uh, that may be other risk factors. Uh, say you, uh, cigarette use or uh, weight issues, or you can't exercise. Uh, and, but in addition, there are things that we call risk-enhancing factors um, that I'll define in the next slide that also increase your risk a little bit further than what our uh, uh, equations show. And I'll define that more in just a moment. But again, a lot of this comes down to your preferences and values. Now, this is a long list, and, um, and different clinicians will, this is from the cardiology guidelines, and many, uh, and each physician uh, will look at this list with, uh, with, with nuance. That is to say, if you're a rheumatologist um, uh, or caring for patients with HIV or bad skin diseases, you may look at it from that point of view. Um, if you're um, uh, someone who really pays attention to family history, that may be uh, one of the most important uh, parts of your decision making. So, if I have a patient who's you know who's younger, but they say my dad died at uh, 48, and I'm only 40, but I'm nervous, you know that becomes a very important part of the conversation. If the LDL is very high, like we talked about before, uh, metabolic syndrome is uh, pre-diabetes or other uh, abnormalities a chronic kidney disease, uh, 
uh, issues of uh, obstetric issues, um, uh, particularly preeclampsia, uh, chronic inflammatory disorders, in this case, uh, some of the rheumatologic diseases, diseases, RA stands for rheumatoid arthritis. Uh, some uh, high-risk ethnic groups, uh, there's some very important uh, research over the last uh, decade or so from UCSF and elsewhere, uh, suggesting that certain uh, South Asian populations uh, have higher risk, even at the same levels. Uh, if the triglycerides are very high, again, different clinicians interpret that differently. Um, some clinicians will look at other factors in the blood. Um, uh, and there are new scans that you can do, uh, which uh, may also reflect uh, with how much uh, early uh, atherosclerosis you have on your, uh, <clears throat> on your coronary arteries. All of these, if they're positive, increase your risk, and they're not part of our equations. So if your equation is 10% and you're sort of in a borderline uh, zone, then using one of these other factors, uh, either by history or by additional testing, may be something that you and your clinician want to do. The most important point to me, though, of this, other than the things like family history, where sometimes that really drives the conversation, most of these other things, like if, you're, if you test a, a, a C-reactive protein and that's really high, uh, or your coronary artery calcium score is high, uh, or so on, most of these other factors increase your risk by about 20 or 30%. So what I mean by that is if your risk over 10 years is 10% and you have some of these, it may go to 12%. And that's important to keep in mind. It doesn't go from 10% to 30%. That would be a 300% increase. It, inc it goes up by 20% or 30%. And sometimes people think, well, I have a coronary artery that's positive. I should definitely... Uh, take a, uh, my statin, uh, not necessarily because it increases your risk, but if your risk started really low, that maybe it still keeps you in a relatively low place. And again, lowering a, a small number doesn't confer much benefit. So these are, this is where the nuance is, uh, that this is where there's uh, differences amongst clinicians uh, and maybe to a certain extent uh, amongst special types of different specialties. Um, but it's important to know about this. They all are relevant, um, but they are not all required. In fact, none of these are required. Uh, most of the time, uh, with the exception of uh, family history, which uh, we do uh, uh, regret is not in our equation. That's the one thing we want to consider in everyone. Um, but whether to add some of these other factors is between uh, you and your clinician. That may help you make your decision. Now, I've mentioned uh, the statins uh, a lot, and uh, these are the high-intensity statins uh, and the moderate-intensity statins. And as you remember from our guidelines, uh, everyone either got a moderate-intensity statin or a high-intensity statin. So this turns out to be pretty easy uh, because there are two medicines, both of which are now generic, both of which have been around for quite some time, that are in both groups. That is, uh, torvastatin and rosuvastatin uh, at different doses qualify as a moderate intensity statin and lowers your LDL by 30 to 50%, or a high intensity statin and lowers your LDL by 50%. And so many clinicians use uh, one of these two drugs mostly because it's uh, 
you can get uh, uh, in the ICU, as I mentioned, and the CCU, where people get started on a very high intensity right away. Uh, it's easy just to prescribe one of these at the highest dose and discharge the patient on that. Similarly, in the clinic, uh, uh, we often follow uh, principles of starting low and going slow. Uh, so we might start again with one of these two medicines um, at a lower dose and then make sure, see how the patient's doing with it and just make sure that we don't have what we call clinical inertia. Uh, you don't, if your goal is to get to say a high intensity statin and you start a torvastatin 10 or 20, you don't want to get stuck because you forgot. Uh, and so we start uh, with 10 or 20 sometimes uh, to prevent side effects or just make sure the patient feels comfortable. Uh, but the key is to get it up uh, to, into the zone we care about uh, if we're trying to use a high-intensity statin. So resuvastatin, uh, which is um, uh, uh, tra- used to be, when it was trade name, was Crestor uh, and Atorvastatin, which is Lipitor, uh, are the two most commonly used statins in the United States. Atorvastatin uh, became generic before resuvastatin, and so many doctors, because it was cheaper, uh, just got in the habit of using atorvastatin. So that's by far the most common. There's nothing wrong with the other statins. Uh, simvastatin, pravastatin, lovastatin uh, are fine. Uh, they, they just can't get into the high-intensity range. But if you're uh, on simvastatin or pravastatin or lovastatin, and you and your clinician's goal uh, is uh, to keep you on a moderate-intensity statin, and you've achieved your therapeutic goal of getting your LDL less than 100 or less than 70, uh, with those drugs, there's no need to switch. So I have many patients who started uh, on simvastatin or pravastatin or are still on them, uh, and that's fine. Sometimes as they get older, uh, or if they have a new indication for more intensive therapy, we might switch, but it's not required to switch uh, in everyone. Uh, It's just simply convenient that resuvastatin and atorvastatin are in both categories. So it's uh, a convenience um, with those two medications, but the other three are also fine as long as your goal uh, is moderate intensity statin. Now I've talked about equations and um, these are widely available. Uh, I'll show you some websites where you can look at these. Um, They're in the medical record. Uh, Your your doctor can pull this up for you with a, a very quick click uh, in the office. Um, And there's a standardized equation that we use in the United States. Uh, But it turns out that there are hundreds of these equations. You know, it's pretty easy if uh, with with what we call a regression analysis or advanced statistics uh, to look at a whole bunch of risk factors in a given study and come up with an equation. But this one, uh, which is called the pooled cohorts uh, equation, is generally accepted uh, as the uh, one that we use in the United States. Uh, And like I said, it's built into the medical records that most people use, the EPIC system uh, and others. So these are, and it's, you can get an app, uh, put this on your phone, but again, you only need to calculate it occasionally. So you can go to a website also, and I'll show you the URL in just a moment. But, but it's interesting to think about what's, what, uh, what, are the building blocks of the equation. Uh, And that is, it's your age, your sex at birth, uh, your race, uh, and here it's categorized by by, uh, white, African-American, or other. I'll come back to that. Uh, Your total cholesterol uh, as a factor of the overall equations. 
uh, the HDL cholesterol, uh, the systolic blood pressure, whether you're on medications for blood pressure, uh, whether you have diabetes, and whether you smoke. So those are the factors that the equation uh, uses. And these, again, can be obtained right off your medical record uh, or from an app or the website. So it's very easy to do this. Um, and what you get with this equation, and again, I'll show you an example, uh, is the 10-year risk of total cardiovascular disease, both stroke risk and heart attack risk, uh, over 10 years. We used to use an older equation called the Framingham Heart Equation from the old Framingham Heart Study of the 1950s and 60s, and that didn't include stroke. Uh, so this new equation includes stroke. So everyone's risk went up uh, over time because stroke risk uh, was now included. And that is particularly important for women uh, for whom uh, heart disease comes later in life uh, and stroke uh, is almost as common as heart attacks at many uh, stages of life. So stroke is, in men, uh, a heart attack uh, is greater than stroke risk uh, in most ages but in women, they are closer together. Uh, so this uh, new uh, equa newer equation that includes stroke risk is very important. Now, the problem with this equation, which is widely used and not really thought too much about, is that it's very, very imperfect. And I'll show you several uh, slides that illustrate the imperfections. Now, having said that, uh, I use this equation every day. Um, it's the one, like I said, that's built into our systems and we do use it, uh, but one should interpret the results with some nuance. And the first issue is race. And we know from our uh, understandings, increasing understanding uh, of, uh, of uh, systemic racism, um, that the use of race in these equations uh, may be very uh, flawed. Uh, based on how the equations were done, how the, the studies were done, uh, who was included in the studies on which the equations uh, are based, uh, how people were categorized, and so on. And so for many of our other equations, uh, we have eliminated race. So in kidney disease equations now, we've eliminated race, uh, and we have several ways to get at that. Um, this has not yet uh, been accomplished for heart disease, uh, although um, uh, many scientists are, are, are working on that as best they can, is to try to find risk prediction models that are not based on this older uh, concept of, of race. So that's one flaw right at the get-go. What do you do about that? Uh, well, what we used to do in kidney disease before we had a new equation isn't, uh, it was sort of a workaround. But what you can do when you fill out the equation is you can fill it out with all three categories. So fill it out as white, fill it out as black, and fill it out as other. And you will get a range of risk for you for your, based on your other risk factors and your age and sex. So just like with kidney disease, uh, you might see a low estimate and a high estimate uh, and know that you're in between those uh, most likely. Um, and that's one way to do it. It's not an official recommendation. Uh, it's totally a workaround because we have a flawed equation, uh, but it is uh, something that's available because our apps and websites do give us three options uh, based on race ethnicity. Again, I'll show you what a, some, a better equation might look like in a, in a minute. 
Now, another problem with this equation uh, is something that's been known for quite some time. Um, so this is a, a three studies that makes for a complicated slide. But let's just say, for example, look on the left-hand side of the slide. This is one study. And so what they did when they made this equation, as they would for any risk equation, is uh, looked at a particular group of people, uh, did the equation, uh, and then tested the equation so accuracy and predicting risk in a different group of people. And what they showed is, and that um, the uh, gray lines uh, here showed what the risk was of an, of having heart disease or stroke based on the equation, what what the predicted rate would be over ten years. And then when they tested it in other studies, and Northern California Kaiser did one of these studies, you can see that it was substantially less. So the equation said your risk might be 20%, but in fact, it was closer to 10%. Uh, and that's true throughout the, um, the values. And it was true, and it's been true in uh, most uh, of the studies uh, that have looked at this. So um, the, the equations probably overestimate risk pretty consistently. So when someone says your risk is 7.5% or 10% um, based on the equation, your actual risk may be less than that. And if your risk is less than that, then again, from that first slide, if your number is low, if your risk is low, lowering it may not be worth it. So there's another flaw of our, our equation. Now, um, this is a website uh, that I like uh, called um, uh, the Mayo Clinic Statin Choice Decision Aid. Uh, you don't need the URL, just Google uh, Mayo Statin or, uh, um, uh, or Mayo uh, Decision Aid. It uh, comes up right away. Uh, and what's nice about this equation are several things. One of them is, there, as I mentioned, although the equation, that the pooled equation is the one that's sort of won the game that's in it, built into our medical records and used commonly in, in clinical decision-making, there are others. Um, and much like we talked about in terms of race, ethnicity, you can look at some of these other equations to frame uh, your risk using different tools. And so the statin uh, choice, uh, the, the statin decision aid website lets you use the old Framingham uh, equation, this new equation, uh, and another uh, equation called the Reynolds equation, uh, which uh, includes your uh, C-reactor protein and family history as well. So there are other equations out there. And again, on this website, you can look at all three rather than the one that's in, built into your doctor's medical record. The other thing that's great about this um, website is it can <clears throat> translate the numbers into uh, pictures, a uh, pictograph like this. And so let me spend a minute on this uh, to try to illustrate the point. So I've been talking about risk as a number. Uh, risk of an event in 10 years or risk per year. Uh, and the higher your risk, the more important it is to treat you. If you have the disease, that's high risk, treat. Uh, if you have a genetic disorder, high risk, treat. Uh, but if you don't have anything and you're young and low risk, maybe don't treat. There's also something uh, in medicine that we call the number needed to treat, which is how many people like me need to get the medicine I'm about to take uh, before I benefit. Um, and here's what that looks like. And so let's imagine uh, in this example that there are 100 people like you 
uh, who are not on, uh, no one's on any medicine, and we do the equation, uh, and it turns out your risk is 11% in the 10-year model. So 1.1% per year or 11% over uh, 10 years. What that means, uh, in simple arithmetic, if you have 100 people like that, no one's on a medicine now, you can see that we have 11 orange frowny faces. So the this is meant to be a frown. Uh, and your frowny face suggests that these are the people out of 100, because the risk is 11% out of uh, 10 years, that 11 people out of 100 will have a heart attack or a stroke, in this case, a heart attack, in the next uh, 10 years. What that means is that 89 people won't, right? So these green smiley faces are all people who, even though they have the same risk, their risk is also 11%, they're not going to have it, right? They won the lottery, they didn't get it, even though their risk was just as high. Now let's say we move to the other side and we put you uh, on a, a medication. And if we use a medication like uh, moderate intensity statin, uh, then I've already told you that that lowers your risk by a quarter or a third. So let's say for the sake of discussion, that instead of it being 11 people, because I lowered it with a statin, now there are only eight frowny faces, right? Because only eight people will have a heart attack. There are three people here who won the game, right? They're the three people who, by taking a statin, didn't have a heart attack. We lowered, their, we lowered the risk by a quarter or a third, right? So they have a big blue smile. But the but look at the green dots. So the green faces are still the same 89 people. So this is where it gets a very uh, nuanced. So 89 people didn't have a heart attack here without medicine. 89 people didn't have a heart attack here, but they had to take the medicine. So, and then eight other people, even though they took the medicine, because it wasn't a perfect medicine, still had a heart attack. And three people benefited in this uh, example. So this is a, a very a subtle and nuanced uh, uh, process. This is what uh, shared decision-making uh, is one of the tools of shared decision-making, is trying to convert numbers <clears throat> and risks and percents uh, into people. Now, the challenge we have as a community, as a profession, and as a population is that for you sitting across the table making this decision, uh, you'd have you realize that you have to treat a lot of people, treat a hundred people to prevent three heart attacks, and you have to take the chance of being one of those people. So for you, the number needed to treat is relatively high. You have to treat say thirty three people, eighty nine people, uh, uh, treat a hundred people to prevent three. So it's thirty three. But from a population standpoint. We're preventing three out of 100, and that's a lot of lives, a lot of heart attacks. So this is where um, it gets very confusing, because if you're thinking about the whole population, then maybe statins should be in the water supply, and we should just lower everyone by a quarter or a third. But uh, since we don't practice medicine that way, we give people individual choices, and you have to think about what's your personal value. Do you want to take the risk? Or do you want to hedge your bets by taking the medication? 
But clearly, from a population standpoint, treating uh, aggressively will prevent heart attacks and strokes in the population. But for you, you have to make a decision. And you can see why, in this example, the, per, the risk was 11%. You can see where if I made this 15%, it doesn't really change the conversation that much, right? So whether it's 7.5 or 11 or 13, it doesn't really matter that much. Um, by the time you get up to 20, um, you know, that's, a, that's the point at which that's the same risk as if you've already had a heart attack, a risk of having another one. Uh, so 20% uh, risk is a high number, and everyone agrees on that one. I think between 5 and 20, that's where there's nuance and debate. Now, this is a, a slide I uh, uh, saw uh, presented on uh, uh, this, a similar topic. As I mentioned, uh, it's very easy to develop risk, in, uh, risk equations, <laughs> and uh, the literature has literally hundreds of them. Um, it's a very easy thing for a statistician to do, and many uh, statistics graduate students have done them. So there's a full literature on this. But this is what the United Kingdom is using as part of their, their uh, federal health system. And so instead of the one that we're using that's available on your app or on the website or on your doctor's uh, chart, <clears throat> they use a different calculator based upon their own uh, assessment. And it's, uh, and it's interesting to look at it. And I put it, this is on two different slides to really emphasize the difference. They have a wider age range. They still look at sex. And they remember, we used uh, black, uh, we used Caucasian, black, and other. Uh, but they break down your ethnicity with great uh, nuance, focusing more on ancestry rather than, quote, race. And they uh, make some subtle distinctions. Because, there, as I mentioned, there are differences among between South Asians, for example, and East Asians. Uh, where you live, so your neighborhood uh, determines the social determinants of your health, uh, your access to food, your income level, your education level. And the postcode is meant to be a surrogate for some of the other social determinants of health that are not factored in. Whether you smoke, whether you have diabetes, those are the same. Whether you're on blood pressure treatment, that's the same. And then they also factor in some of these other uh, illnesses that some of which were on our list of enhancing uh, factors, but not all of them, uh, but things that also have been shown to increase your risk, the rheumatologic diseases that we talked about, uh, but also some medications uh, that also uh, may increase your risk. Uh, your lipid numbers, as we do in our equations, um, uh, your blood pressure, um, the variation of your blood pressure, uh, which is a subtle uh, factor, and your body weight, which we do not include uh, in our equation. So this is the one that they use. Here's the website here. These slides will be uh, on our website, so you can uh, uh, get this later. Uh, you, don't, you don't have to take a photo of it, but please do if you want. Um, and in addition, uh, but this is, gives you uh, some insight into other ways to calculate risk. And so it's looking for uh, more nuance. All right. So in summary, uh, the last many paragraphs were really to make the point that we make a lot of decision making based on uh, risk assessment, which we do primarily in the United States with a standard equation, keeping in mind that there are other equations and that the equation we use uh, overestimates risk and may have other flaws. 
and that there are other factors which modify the risk uh, by uh, 20% or or more uh, that may help you make your decision. And then finally, when making a decision, you have to decide your own uh, values, uh, your own risk averse, how how risk averse you are, how much risk you're willing to take, uh, whether you want to maximize uh, the decreasing of your risk of a heart attack or stroke, uh, or whether you think, well, the odds don't sound so bad, I'll take my chances. On the other hand, your decision is in contradistinction to the, the, what's best for the community at large, because if we all took the medicine and lowered things by the risk by a quarter or a third, uh, the rate in the society would continue to go down. All right, let's end by talking about a few other medications briefly. Uh, these are less important, and I'll go over them uh, quickly, but they're some of them are of historical interest and some of them are new. Uh, but just to reiterate, statins are the treatment of choice based upon randomized trials. That's what we've talked about. We used to use niacin or fibric acid derivatives, phenofibrate and others, uh, to uh, either without statins or added to statins. Um, and we now know from convincing uh, scientific studies that if you're on a statin, taking extra niacin or extra fibrate does not increase your benefit. No, no extra reduction in risk. And in fact, one of the studies showed that if you took uh, niacin at therapeutic doses, you did worse. So niacin and, uh, and the fibric acid derivatives uh, should not be used with statins. Occasionally, we use them alone, um, particularly in people who can't to- tolerate uh, statins uh, or who have other uh, have particular uh, distinctive um, lipid pat- uh, patterns. Uh, but this is increasingly uncommon because there are other drugs that are more potent. But you may still see some occasional patients on fibric acid derivatives. Phenofibrate is a common one. Clofibrate is an older one. But these have, niacin and fibric acid derivatives have fallen out of favor. The, uh, the newer drugs include azetamib. Um, this is a, a drug that um, does lower your risk. Uh, but not very much. And instead of a quarter or a third, it lowers your risk of uh, events uh, by 6%. Uh, And this was in a study that took seven years. It was a study that was um, funded by the drug company. It was planned as a five-year study. It was a totally negative study, six years, totally negative study. Finally, at seven years, they showed the small benefit uh, that achieved statistical significance. And so, uh, Personally, I uh, rarely use this drug, but I can say it doesn't work. It just doesn't work very much. Uh, so it has a very marginal extra benefit on top of statins. Remember, statins are a quarter or a third, and this is uh, 6%. So this is a, um, uh, a drug that some patients, especially who have already had a heart attack or stroke, um, uh, may take if the statins have not lowered their cholesterol enough. There are two newer drugs. Um, that uh, are uh, common, uh, the PC, uh, PCSK9 inhibitors. Um, they inhibit a protein uh, in the liver um, uh, that uh, changes um, how your liver uh, degrades LDL. Uh, they're very effective. They're monoclonal antibodies. They have to be given by injections. Uh, they're expensive, uh, but they lower your LDL cholesterol a lot uh, by 50% over and above what the statins have done. 
so this these are very effective medicines um, in lowering your cholesterol, but they do require injections either every other week or uh, once a month. And they are approved in the United States for genetic disorders and also for other patients who need additional LDL lowering. The problem with these drugs uh, is that despite the fact that they lower the cholesterol by another 50%, which is a ton, so you can get the LDL down to rather than less than 70, it might be 30 uh, or something in that order of magnitude. What it did was that it lowered uh, heart disease and strokes uh, to a certain extent, by about 15% or so, and 20% in one study. Uh, so not as much as statins. And you needed to treat a lot of people in order to get that benefit. But the most uh, troubling thing is that there was no reduction in mortality. So as opposed to statins, uh, which prevent heart attacks and strokes, but also uh, prevent uh, death from heart attacks and strokes, uh, this medicine did not uh, have that benefit. Uh, nonetheless, it does re uh, reduce the event risk uh, more than azetamib, less than statins. Um, um, but it's been disappointing. I think we thought at the outset that if we lowered the cholesterol that much more, uh, we would have a much more dramatic impact. Uh, and that's not what's been seen. So these drugs are available. They're mostly used by cardiologists rather than uh, primary care clinicians. Uh, they are still expensive, although the prices come down uh, with time, uh, and they are available uh, for selected patients. But these are not in common usage. There are some, uh, and then uh, the, what the Cardiology Society says that these drugs may be considered. Uh, we don't really know yet too much about the long-term safety. Um, uh, because the studies were three years uh, uh, long uh, and they are expensive. So the economic value uh, equation is, is poor. There are some other drugs uh, that are in the, uh, in the pipeline. Uh, they also are much less effective than statins um, and more uh, in the azetamib or P uh, PCSK9 uh, category. Uh, a little bit of benefit, whether they come to uh, utilization or not, time will tell. Um, uh, but uh, the science continues, uh, but nothing has really uh, matched statins. So to get back to our patient, um, remember the question was, uh, what should we do next? And again, the theme of this has been uh, shared decision-making. Uh, and in fact, that's what we should do is begin the process of shared decision-making, uh, trying to uh, balance those benefits and risks. Um, in the office, if we were going to start a uh, uh, statin, we typically would start uh, probably a torvastatin or maybe resuvastatin if it's covered by insurance at a low dose and then build up slowly to a moderate uh, or high intensity. We don't use aspirin anymore uh, because the risk of bleeding <clears throat> turns out to be um, as much as the benefit, but this is primary prevention. If you've already had a stroke or a heart attack, you should stay on your aspirin. Uh, and then fish oil um, ha has not been shown to prevent heart attacks or strokes, uh, despite some very uh, some old studies that suggested that it might. Uh, so we don't recommend fish oil. The good news is that fish oil, though, is benign. So if you're taking fish oil, no harm, no foul. Uh, it's not dangerous like some other supplements can be, um, but it doesn't work much either except in the one case where if your triglycerides are very high, uh, fish oil can be used in a different way uh, to lower your blood uh, triglycerides. And there's a new form of fish oil that's now available for that purpose as well. 
So to conclude, um, statins are effective and cost-effective um, in four groups of patients. Um, the three easy ones are those who have atherosclerotic car- uh, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, or genetic disorder. Um, and then after that, it's more nuanced. It's the primary prevention conversation. Um, and if you're very high risk, no one has any argument with it. Uh, if you're over, say, 20%, some people would say 15%, then by all means, uh, uh, it's an easy discussion. I think where there's debate uh, is whether your risk is in that 5 to 15% uh, risk. Uh, most cardiologists will say 7.5%. Some will use 5%. Uh, the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force, which is a more uh, um, um, a group of um, specialists and generalists, but mostly uh, generalists and epidemiologists, uh, recommends a more conservative 10%. Um, and again, I think what's most important um, is you can use other factors to see if that 10 goes up to 13 or 14 or goes down to 6. That may help you for your own risk with uh, some of the risk-enhancing uh, things that we mentioned. Uh, and again, that may help you in here uh, to as you move between uh, 7.5 and, say, 15 or 20%. And then in certain patients, um, and mostly under the care of a cardiologist, uh, you could add a second medicine, but uh, almost always in conjunction uh, with a statin as well. So with that, I will stop and... Um, uh, see what we have in the way of questions. Uh, how does uh, um, the, the mechanism of statins? They change the metabolism uh, of the uh, of, of degradation of the of the statin. Um, so that we, uh, it is known what the mechanism is. Uh, it's been it's well established, um, and it, it interferes one of the uh, with the, the body's uh, enzymes, uh, which metabolize uh, blood cholesterol. Thank you. The risk of diabetes for taking statins is an important question. I should have mentioned that. Uh, there is a slight increased risk of uh, your blood sugar going up while you take statins. Uh, and uh, diabetes is defined as having a blood pressure above a certain number. In the United States, we use 126. Um, and so if you happen to be close and the statins raise your blood sugar a little bit and you just cross that line, then technically you may throw some people into having true diabetes rather than prediabetes. Um, the actual risk of that difference is um, subtle because the relationship between diabetes and health uh, is, a, is a gradual line that builds, just like your blood pressure and your cholesterol. Um, so although we think of uh, pre-diab- normal prediabetes and diabetes as very hard and fast categories, it turns out there's more subtlety there. Um, and the studies that I showed you that showed that uh, statins lower your risk of a heart attack or stroke by a quarter or a third took into account the impact that it had on your diabetes risk. So it is true, your blood sugar may go up a, a tiny bit in some cases. I rarely see that, but it's in the literature. Uh, and the occasional person may in a big group might cross over into diabetes, uh, but that's a subtle difference. Uh, compared to the overall benefit of um, uh, of of the statins on uh, preventing uh, heart attacks and strokes and preventing uh, mortality, does drinking alcohol affect cholesterol levels? Not too much. It affects your total cholesterol, 
because it, it can increase your blood triglycerides. So um, when people have a high blood triglyceride, we're always looking for reasons, um, and alcohol is one of them. Um, estrogens can raise your uh, triglycerides, uh, certain kidney diseases, but the most common is an elevated blood sugar. So patients with diabetes or prediabetes uh, often have elevated blood, uh, blood triglycerides, uh, which may not be all that important unless it gets very high, but it may increase your total cholesterol uh, in, based on that equation I mentioned at the very beginning. Uh, so yes, it can affect your total cholesterol, but it does not affect your LDL cholesterol. There's been some talk over the years that maybe uh, moderate, moderate alcohol use, would, uh, uh, which has been shown to be associated with longer life expectancy uh, on average in, in populations um, compared to both heavy alcohol use and uh, being a teetotaler. Uh, but those are mostly observational studies that could be uh, confounded. Uh, but there's been some theory over the years that maybe uh, wine or red wine or some al other alcohols can raise your HDL or good cholesterol. Uh, but the science around that is not very secure. Um, so in general, if you prefer to be a teetotaler, uh, we, we support that. If you prefer to drink uh, uh, alcohol uh, moderately, we support that. Uh, and we try to avoid uh, substance use disorders of people who are high-risk drinkers and, uh, and, and uh, consume too much. Does climate rather than uh, nationality or ancestry have an influence on your risk? Is global warming going to be a problem? Uh, do populations in the North do better or worse than populations in warmer climates? Um, you know, I think that's a mixed bag. Uh, in general, it's been the developed, developed countries of the North uh, that have had the highest risk of heart disease and strokes. Um, uh, and uh, and that's not, it's not known whether that's environmental or ancestral uh, or environmental. Um, however, as I suggested, there are some uh, warmer climb um, populations, some of which are quite large, like, sub, um, uh, like Southern India, I mean, Southern Asia, um, uh, that have higher risks uh, for equal body mass index, equal weight, equal cholesterol levels. So uh, we don't know the answer to this question. Um, global warming is a big problem any way you cut it. Um, and uh, I guess in the context of what I've talked about tonight, eating lower on the food chain is probably the most relevant thing that we can do in the, uh, of the things that I mentioned uh, in, in terms of eating less red meat. Uh, uh, because of the uh, uh, amount of energy that's consumed in producing red meat. Uh, so that's another argument for eating less uh, red meat um, in the context that we've talked about. Um, and the last question, what, what is the range of time it takes to modify one's numbers with lifestyle changes um, is, uh, is lability of blood pressure a risk factor? Good. Um, you know, generally we give people uh, several months um, of lifestyle um, in, to, before we see them in follow-up. It depends what the goal is. Um, uh, if it's weight loss, for example, we may see someone more intensively depending on uh, their, uh, their motivation and, and wishes. Uh, but generally it takes several months um, um, to begin to see the effects of, uh, of lifestyle changes. But remember, I, didn't, I wasn't cle as, as clear as I might have been on this. Diet, remember the joke about your grandmother or diet. Most of your cholesterol is uh, 
driven by ancestry um, and genetics. Um, this, the best studies of the best diets uh, uh, that we use uh, along the lines of what I mentioned, lower your uh, LDL cholesterol by about 5%, 5, maybe 10%. So it's very, very hard with, and, and statins lower it by 30 to 50%. So, um, so diet, the benefits from lifestyle are very, very important, but you won't see it necessarily on your LDL cholesterol. It's a benefit you get beyond the cholesterol. Uh, and so uh, for better or for worse, uh, statins are much more potent than, uh, than diet. Even if you restrict saturated fat severely, um, and total calories severely, uh, LDL is often uh, hard to move. Now, there are some studies in the literature that can get LDL down 15 or 20 percent, but they're very unusual diets, eccentric diets with lots of foods that are uh, been shown to lower cholesterol, like soy products, uh, very high fiber diets, um, and certain uh, nut, nut products and the like, but they're not really palatable diets. When we talk about the healthy, heart healthy diet, that we mostly talk about uh, the benefit on LDL is about 5%. If you lose 20 pounds, it might be more than that uh, if you're overweight. But again, um, your blood pressure and your blood sugar come down much more effectively with, uh, with exercise and diet than does the LDL cholesterol. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, Visit us online at uctv.tv.